Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have one of the most action-packed parshas in the entire Torah here, Peloscha, and it's just one event after another, chronicling the journeys through the 40 years of wandering through the desert. And very significantly, they're all collected in this new book of the Torah that we're in, Bamidbar. It's translated as numbers, but Bamidbar means the desert. And it chronicles the mistakes that we made over our time in the desert. You could definitely make a case that it's the most exciting, most fascinating book of the entire Torah. Because it's really talking about our journeys through life, you, you and me. The Torah is forever and the Torah is constantly relevant, constantly talking about where we are today. As is famously said in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, if you want to know what's going on in the world, look at what's going on in the portion of the week. And so if this is all about journeys and we know life is all about journeys and this is all about our mistakes during those journeys, then, you know, we really have to pay special attention. So the Parsha begins, very interestingly, with the menorah. And if you look at the modern state of Israel, or even ancient coins, this symbol that the Jewish people seized on to represent themselves is the menorah. And at a very simple level, you can say that the, the Jewish people have been commanded to be a light unto the nations. And so the menorah is actually very representative of that. But there are a lot of other things that we could have picked other than the menorah. And so why the menorah exactly? Reb Tzadik says that we are the children of prophets. And so even though, technically speaking, prophecy doesn't exist in the world anymore, nonetheless, there's like a taste of prophecy. And so if the Jewish people decide on a certain practice and it takes root among the Jewish people, and it's rooted in Jewish law, and you see that it perpetuates through the generations, then there's something to it, and it should be taken seriously. Now, it doesn't have the status of law, but nonetheless, there is a depth to it that has to be respected and ideally kept. And one of the commentators pointed out, I don't know who, but something very fascinating, which is that if you take the letters of the word Hagim, if you rearrange the letters, it spells Gehenim. Gehenim, of course, means, is translated as hell. Now, Jews don't have hell, but we do have this sort of intermediary period that the soul travels through after it leaves the body till it arrives in Shemayim, in heaven. And it's a purification process. And every soul passes through it, by the way. So the righteous just zip through it, but they go through it. And others spend more time in it, but it's meant as a cleaning, basically. It's a purification. So the idea that the word minig, or minhagim, and gehenim should have a correlation is very, very interesting. And I, what I learned from that connection is not that, oh, if you don't keep this custom, you're going to burn in hell. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that is the teaching here. I think it's that, hey, minhagim should be taken seriously. I think that's the message. And, and so, anyway, we have this idea that, that we are menorahs. We, we chose that upon ourselves. So, so why? Why is that so resonant? And what I'd like to suggest is, I can only give you part of this teaching, sadly, but I can give you enough of it that you can see the truth of it. And it's from the Vilna Gon, and I, I pledge, I pledge to learn the entire teaching. I've actually gone over it a couple of times, but for some reason it hasn't like stuck to my brain fully yet. But, but it is this teaching that actually blows me away and I love it. And, and let me share the following with you. If you look at the instructions of how to make the menorah, it's actually very, very complicated. In fact, it's so complicated that when God explained it to Moshe, Moshe couldn't figure out how to make it. Not only that, but the Medrash in Tanchuma 
says that God showed him a visual, a menorah on fire. And Moshe still couldn't figure out how to make it. Now we're going to delve into what that means exactly, at least one level of it. But the point is that the different parts of the menorah are very, very complex. And one of the primary things is they had to be made out of one solid piece of gold. So how to construct all of these various particulars and the exact number of all of these different particulars while making it out of one solid piece of gold was very, very difficult. Now, listen to the following and all these details that I'm telling you are going to start to come together in a more focused picture. What the Vilna Gon points out is, if you take the particulars of making the menorah, that they exactly parallel the number of words in each of the opening verses of each of the books of the Torah. Now, I can only give you one example, but I'm telling you that I've learned this and I, I've seen that this is true. So let me give you one example. How many branches of the menorah were there in the Holy Temple, in the Mishkan? And the answer is seven, right? If you were thinking eight, that's the Chanukiah. That's, that's for Hanukkah. But the actual menorah that was in the Holy Temple, that was seven branches, okay? Now, now listen to this. Let's count the number of words in the first verse of Breshis, in the book of Genesis. Breshis, bara, elokim, es hashamayim, ve'es ha'aretz. Seven words correlating with the seven branches. Now, there are knobs and there are flowers and there are all these different ornamentations on the menorah as well, and a very exact number of those. And each one of those things correlates with the exact number of words of the opening verse of the next book and the next book of the Torah. Now, that's amazing. That's amazing. Because the menorah makes light and the Torah is light or Torah, right? And if you want to see that in an amazing gematria, you ready for this amazing gematria, the word orot, orot, remember or in Hebrew means light, orot means lights, that's plural. You ready for this? The gematria of orot is 613, the number of mitzvahs in the Torah, because each mitzvah is another light. Isn't that amazing? The Torah itself is this awesome light, and every single mitzvah in the Torah, every single connection. Remember, mitzvah is sadly, sadly, translated as commandment. That's not untrue. That's not untrue. But it, it sort of undermines a bit of the beauty and the depth of what it is. It, it, it suggests that God is some taskmaster, you know, with a whip saying, you know, do, do this, do that, do this, do that. Whereas the root of the word mitzvah is tzav, which means a connection, a divine connection. In other words, God allows us through all the different particulars of the world to constantly, from the moment that we wake up to our last breath on earth, to constantly forge this amazing connection with us. So as such, Reb Shlomo translates the word mitzvahs as divine pathways that we get to walk down through life, okay? So I want to go deeper. The idea is like this. I've shown you how the menorah is a microcosm of the Torah, because each of the parts of the menorah parallels a different book of the Torah. Do you understand? So the menorah itself is a reflection of the Torah. And God created the world out of the Torah, all right? He took all of, like, the Torah itself is, so to speak, God's mind. Now, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. But so to speak, when you get into the Torah, you get into the mind of God, into the consciousness of God. And God took his consciousness, his, his dreams for the world, his plan for the world, and he condensed that vision for the world into the world itself, okay? 
Now, with that in mind, if you were to ask me, pick a symbol for the Jewish people, do you know what I would have picked? I would have picked the tablets, the luchos. And for one reason, they're very easy to draw. <laughs> Even I could draw the tablets <laughs> or like a rough, ancient looking, you know, thing that you could put on a coin anyway. Like once you get into a menorah, like that's all right. You got to have a little bit of talent to kind of like draw that and, you know, put it on a coin or whatever it is. And remember, from the most ancient times, we had menorahs on coins, you know. So, so why not? Why not pick? And again, now I'm getting back into this prophetic element of the Jewish people at work here in terms of choosing the menorah. Why did they choose the menorah and not the tablets of the Torah? Right? It seems to me like that would have been even better. But but that wasn't the that wasn't the the correct choice, okay? That's not what we arrived at through this 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 taste of prophecy, if you will. And it actually makes perfect sense. And what I would like to suggest is, think about the way the Holy Temple was, was arranged. And everybody knows that the Ark of the Torah, the Aaron Kodesh, was in the Holy of Holies. And that's where the tablets were. That's where the Luchos were. They were inside the Ark, which was in the Holy of Holies. And then in front of that room was a curtain separating it from the next outer chamber. And it was in that next outer chamber that you had the menorah, which is symbolizing us. In other words, what I think that it's saying on a very, very deep level is that the Torah is the mind of God, so to speak. And that's blocked off by a curtain because ultimately we don't know. Do you understand? We, we're just outside of that. And we can shine a light and reflect to the best of our ability. But the, the ultimate, ultimate, like the inside of the inside of the inside of the inside of Hashem himself is just beyond, 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 beyond. And, you know, there's this exercise that I've kind of been working with that I think is kind of fun just to know the if you just kind of want to just try to arrive a little bit at the unknowability of God, right? The infinity of God. I, I like this. I've been thinking about this lately. If you draw a circle on a page, that's, that's two dimensions. Now, if you have a ball, that's a three-dimension version of the circle on the page, right? That's a sphere. Okay, so now you have it in three dimensions. Great. Now, let me ask you a question. What does a four-dimensional sphere look like? <laughs> Any ideas? No. How about a five-dimensional sphere? How about, how about a billionth-dimensional sphere? <laughs> Can you, do you even have the beginning of the beginning of an idea? Right? And God has no form whatsoever. So God is dimensions and dimensions and dimensions beyond. And it's very important. I, I always try to communicate this because this is one of the most important teachings. When we're speaking about God, you know, our hallmark prayer of the Jewish people, we're, we're supposed to, this is supposed to be on our lips as the last thing that we say before we go to sleep at night. And if a person is especially blessed, the last thing they say before they leave this world, okay? And that's Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, right? Talking about the, the oneness of God. So when it says, when we say that God is one, and what does that mean exactly? So one thing it means is that the whole world belongs to God. But one of the nice explanations, and I'm forgetting who said this exactly, but one of the great rabbis, that it means that God is unique. That's what it means, Hashem Echad, one, God is one. It means God is unique. Now, what, is, what does unique mean? Unique means that there's nothing that you can point to in this world 
That's a version of God. In other words, many of us mistakenly think that God is a bigger, stronger, smarter version of us. But no, there is nothing that you can point to in this world which is a parallel to God or a likeness of God. So many of you might be thinking, well, it says we're created in his image, but, but that's just a little tiny taste of it. In other words, what that means on the most simple level is that just like God has free choice, we have free choice. Right? But when you get even deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, everything is just belongs to Hashem. So even that sort of like hits a roadblock if you go deeply enough. <laughs> We're getting into Ishvitz territory now. But anyway, the point is that there's a curtain between the tablets and the menorah itself. Now, I want to say something more about the menorah and how it parallels this world. Because I told you God made the world out of the Torah and the menorah itself is a miniature of the Torah. So isn't it interesting that Moshe didn't understand how to make all the different parts of the Torah fit together while making it out of one thing? And God even showed him a version of it. And Moshe still didn't understand it. Now, if the menorah represents this world and everything ultimately fitting together, doesn't it make sense that it's absolutely incomprehensible? Like, don't you wonder, how do we get that happy ending that we're promised? How does everything actually fit together? How does it work? Well, it's confounding. So what's the end of that Midrash? The end of the Midrash is great. God says to Moshe, take an ingot of gold, throw it in the fire, and Moshe did, and out of that fire came the menorah. Meaning to say, and the Maharal points this out, one can't just throw up their arms in the air and go, God, I don't know how all of this fits together. I'm just going to believe in you and... I've done my job. So that's not the Jewish path. The Jewish path is, even if we don't know how to do it ultimately, and we don't know what the answer is ultimately, we have to start the process. So Moshe starts the process. He takes the ingot, he throws it into the fire, and then God makes it all come together. And that's how it's going to happen in our lives too, and in this world too. We have to continue to put into the effort we have to continue to put in the effort. And then ultimately, it's all going to come together in a miraculous way. There's no question. There's no question. And the fact that we don't necessarily understand how it's going to happen is not a contradiction. It's, it's not a contradiction at all. So we just have to stay the course. So I want to say something more about us and the menorah, Okay. Because these connections are very, very deep and they, they're ongoing, okay? The menorah itself, you see, ultimately, the only thing that exists is God, right? When we say at the end of Elenu, the first paragraph, we say, Ein od, there is no other, or Ein od milvado, there is no power other than God. In the deepest understanding, what that means is the only thing that exists, period, is God. And in the deepest way, what's going on in this world is this ongoing conversation that God is having with himself. So it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing that we somehow get a, to, a chance to, to play a role through our own free choice in this in this epic, this epic, epic, epic drama that's unfolding in front of our eyes, right? So if you want to look at it in terms of the oneness of God, God fills this entire world, but he exists dimensions beyond this world simultaneously. 
And that's kind of the point that I was getting at before. And, and it's, it, this is sort of like a, a very bedrock idea. Believe it or not, it's heresy. It's actually heresy within Jewish thought to say God equals the world and the world equals God. I believe Spinoza got into a lot of trouble by espousing something very similar to this idea. And on the face of it, it sounds like a very enlightened spiritual idea. You want to say that the world is filled with godliness. Like, what's the problem with that? Well, there isn't a problem with that as long as you add part two, this next thought, that God fills the entirety of the world and exists dimensions beyond the world. Okay, that is the key point. That is the key point. And for you to have a Jewish view of the world, you must have both of those ideas together. Okay. So, with that in mind, in terms of the composition of this world, and we're not talking about the composition of God, because we can't describe God. We can't even begin to describe God. But in terms of the composition of this universe, we can say that it's made out of light, L-I-G-H-T. Right? There's this divine light, this divine energy that ultimately becomes the material universe, right? In this E equals MC squared Einsteinian way where, where this light, which is energy, becomes mass. So, but it's all ultimately light. And since God made the world out of the Torah, isn't it great, again, this gematria, that the word orot, lights, is 613? Because the world is made out of the Torah, Right? That's why, by the way, you've got these phenomenal connections, which, if you think about it logically, make no sense at all. Like, for instance, the Torah says, if you give tzedakah, it will rain. <laughs> well, what does me giving this guy 10 bucks have to do with a cloud coming over and opening up over my crops? But you see, if the world is actually made out of the Torah, all of the mitzvahs and all of nature and all of our activities are wired together in this very coherent model that the Torah presents to us. So it makes ultimate sense. But the point is this. The world is made out of light, and the menorah, which in its construction parallels the structure of the Torah, right? The menorah itself, you ready? Does not give off light. <laughs> okay. Probably didn't think that that thought was going to end that way. The menorah is just a piece of furniture. But now here's the super cool part. You ready for this? We have to light the menorah. By using our free choice, we make the menorah, which is a microcosm of the world, emit light. We make it shine through our lighting of the menorah. And there you see a very wonderful view of what it means to be a human being in this world, right? Through your free choice, you bring light into this world. And now I want to just mention this again, because this is just a such an important idea. I really want everyone to hammer this thought into your head. The Kutzka Rebbe famously asks, where is God? And, you know, you want to just raise your hand and, I know, I know, I know, I know, God is everywhere. But the Kutzker gives a much deeper answer than that. He says, God is where you make a place for him. You see, God is everywhere. But if I'm speaking bad about other people and I'm cheating at business, and I'm just being a rat, then it almost is irrelevant that God is everywhere. Because God himself chose that his ultimate revelation in this world will be through our collective actions. Let me say that again. God himself chose, even though God is everywhere. Now think of the menorah now. Think of the menorah. Even though God is absolutely everywhere, God chose that his ultimate revelation in this world will be through our actions. In other words, that's the lighting of the menorah. 
The menorah itself doesn't give off light, but through lighting the menorah, we through our actions can give off light. And that's, I think, a very exciting parallel. And now I'm going to say one, one last thing on the menorah, for now anyway, which is that how does it give off light? Well, there's a little bowl, and the bowl holds the oil, and okay, and then you put a wick in the oil and you light it and it gives off light. Okay, it seems pretty straightforward. But can I ask you a question? What if there's a hole in the bowl? <laughs> then the oil doesn't stay in the bowl, does it? So those bowls are called kalim. It's a kli. Now, as the Magali Amukos points out, the word kli, which means vessel or bowl, you know, if you will, kli is spelled chaf lamid yud, which stands for kohen levi Yisrael. Meaning to say, when there's togetherness among people, then you have a vessel. If you don't have togetherness, achdut, if you don't have togetherness among people, you can hold the oil to make the light. Do you understand? <laughs> In other words, we when do we make light? We make light when we're together. We have to be together, which means you have to get along with people. It's not a small thing. It's not like, oh, you know what? That's your problem. And this is the way I am. And if you can't accept me for who I am, that's your problem. You know what? If you're, if enough people are having an issue with you, you're the issue. <laughs> it's not just this. I remember I, I, I knew this person once, okay? And they were always telling me, this person's mad at me and that person's mad at me. And, and you know, I like this person a lot. And I would say, well, that's, you know, that's this person's problem. That's that person's problem. You should ignore them. And at a certain point, I realized, wait, no, you're the problem. <laughs> so, you know, if you're having issues with a lot of people, ask yourself, what am I doing that's creating all of this dissonance? This is not how everyone goes through life. Everyone doesn't go through life fighting with everyone. So it's, it's important. It's important. There, there's a, a historical account about the destruction of the Second Temple when the Romans came in. The Romans were afraid, the Romans were afraid to actually go into the, the sanctuary itself because they were like nothing good is going to come from this. You know, we're like, okay, we're, are we really going to go into the sanctuary itself and then just try to like loot it and, and burn it down? So, so they arrived at a plan, basically. This, these are the frontmost troops that were going to destroy the Holy Temple, which, which they did do, by the way. And they said, well, if we get a Jew to go in before us to begin the looting process, then God's judgment, anger, whatever it is, will go on him and will be spared. So basically, they grabbed this guy named Yosef, who, you know, and who I guess was not a great person, right? Because what is he doing with the front troops of the Roman invaders right there? And they, they, they say to him, you go in, and whatever, whatever you want, you can keep for yourself. Just, you get first pick of whatever you want, and you can keep it. Now remember, there were these, like, amazing gold vessels and all sorts of things in there. So, he runs in, and he comes out holding the menorah, <laughs> this giant menorah. And the Romans are like, you can't have that. That's like, you know, that's like this, the centerpiece. That's ours. We're taking that. And in fact, you know, one of the well-known things where you see a historic proof that the Romans destroyed the Holy Temple is in Italy today on one of the arches, you have a, a portrayal 
of the Roman soldiers carrying the menorah from the Holy Temple on their shoulders. I, I, you, you, all you, have to, you can Google it, you can see it in two seconds. It's, it's right there, right in the, the middle of Rome. So anyway, they say, you can't have that. Go back in and get something else. And he says, no, I can't. I've already, I've already done something that I never should have done to begin with. And they're like, no, 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 no. Go back in. He's like, I can't. I can't. And they're like, go back in. And he does tshuva, and they end up killing him. He gives up his life rather than doing it again. And he turns into one of like the sketchiest characters in Jewish history to becoming one of the greatest, most beautiful examples of tshuva and returning to God. And it all revolves around the menorah. So yeah, so the, the final point that I'm making about the menorah here is that that vessel has to be intact. We have to be intact. We have to be getting along with each other. And when, when that happens, then we can hold the oil to make the light. So that is, that's the menorah. That's the menorah. And I heard something very beautiful from Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita. And he said that we're always reading this Parsha, Baloscha, with the menorah, before the three weeks are starting. And the three weeks represents a different energy shift if you will, within the calendar. We've just gone through a number of, you know, amazing holidays. Like we've gone through this, like, like we've ramped up from Purim to Pesach, Lagba Omer, to Shavuos. We got to the top of Mount Sinai, the revelation of the Torah itself. And now things are shifting. And we're heading into this period called the three weeks. And the three weeks culminates with Tisha B'Av, which, you know, is this very, very interesting day in the calendar. On, a, on, on one level, it's absolutely, unmistakably, the saddest, darkest day of the entire year. And we've got three weeks leading up to it in terms of going into a little bit of mourning which increases as, as we get closer to the day itself. But at the same time, we've got a medrash that on Tisha B'Av, Mashiach is born, which is the redemption. So on the one hand, it's like this very sad day. And on the other hand, it's this like miraculous day of redemption. So how do we understand it? And how do we understand this shift in the calendar from all of these happy days, Purim to Pesach to Shavuos, and then all of a sudden, like, the energy shifts? Okay. So, while I'm thinking about it, before I forget, I want to just do a very special thing right now with all of you, just to make a collective prayer, all of us together something that's not very well known at all. I had the privilege of learning it in one of the farm of Rabbi Wolfson, who I just mentioned. So anyway, just to finish his last thought, we're reading about, we're reading about the menorah before we head into the three weeks where the days get a little darker. So in other words, it's like God is giving us this, this torch of light to lead us through the darkness. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? That's a, that's a beautiful idea. Now, what is today? Today, this is, like I say, most, most people don't know what I'm about to tell you. Today is the 20th of Sivan. Now, what is special about the 20th of Sivan? You ready for this? And I'll give you a little explanation in a moment. According to Rabbi Wolfson, what he brings is, what your 20th of Sivan is like, and that's today, right? Like a lot of times you learn teachings like what I'm about to tell you, like a week after the day itself. And it's like, oh, well, I wish I knew that on the day itself. Well, now you're hearing it on the day itself, okay? 
How your 20th of Sivan goes is how your Yom Kippur goes. All right? So what is the correlation between today and Yom Kippur? Well, sadly, tragically, there was a very, very big massacre of Jews that happened today on the 20th of Sivan in around, I don't have the date exactly, around the 1200s, a whole community was wiped out today. And today was actually instituted as a fast day, but for whatever reason, it didn't kind of take hold. Oh, I see a note here in the year 1171. Thank you, Steve. So it was instituted as a fast day, but today, that for whatever reason, that didn't stick to the calendar. So we don't fast today. But interestingly, Yom Kippur is also a fast day, right? And you see that today is a fast day. So that's an interesting parallel. But now let me give you another parallel, which is like a little bit more spiritual and like really, like it's so intuitive, but it's also so completely far out at the same time. The months of the year can be understood in four blocks of three months. And there are reasons why it would be four blocks of three months. One of the reasons is because each of the tribes represents another month. And when the Jews marched through the desert, they were arranged in three tribes here, three tribes there, three tribes there, three tribes there. We were arranged around the Mishkan, marching forward. So we were arranged in groups of three on four sides. And that makes 12, which is the months of the year. Now, on a very deep level, I was thinking, I, I love this. I think this is so cool. We know that basically our travels from Egypt to arriving in Israel, that 40-year period, was a microcosm of all of world history. Because what is history other than going from exile to redemption? So arriving in Israel really represented like the redemption, okay? And as you know, we made 42 stops. And the Baal Shem Tov says that each of us makes 42 stops in our own lives. So that travel from Egypt to Israel is not just a microcosm of world history. It's a microcosm each of, our, of each of our lives. And you see that it's these four groups of three. Because if that march, that travel from Egypt to Israel represents all of time, then it makes sense that the tribes marching through, each of which represents another month, that it's the march of time itself. It's not just the march of the people entering Israel. It's the march of time arriving at the era of redemption. I hope you followed that. That's super cool. Okay, so now with that in mind, with a, that is a little bit of a background, we see, okay, so the calendar is four groups of three-month packets. Well, the summer months are one of those three-month packets, okay? Meaning to say, Tammuz, Av, and Elul, those three months is one group. Now listen to this. If you go 10 days past that, right, you have Tammuz, Av, and Elul. The next month is Tishrei, right? So if you go 10 days past that clump, you arrive at Yom Kippur. And if you go 10 days before that clump, you get today, the 20th of Sivan. So if you think of it, and these are my words right now, but almost on an acupuncture meridian level you know how your body has these all these meridian points where things connect with each other the 20th of sivan today is like a meridian point touching on yom kippur itself so with that in mind let's just take a moment close your eyes close your eyes and just let's just pray for a good yom kippur that god should cleanse our souls that any mistakes that we've made we're unintentional. 
even if we did them on purpose, they're unintentional because in the deepest way, no one ever wants to go against God. Even if we felt some compulsion to do so, it's not a reflection of our real essence. And as such, it can just be washed away. It's just superficial dirt. And God should just bring holiness and cleansing and kadusha to us as a nation, to us individually, and to the whole world, because we're all God's children. Now we should just be able to stand before God with purity and integrity and closeness, and that we should all be sealed, as my father would say, Allah Shalom, we should all be sealed in the book of life, in all the good books, in all the good books. Okay. So, okay, now everyone can have some bagels and locks. You can go to your breakfast <laughs> if you didn't have it already. Okay. So with that in mind, kind of skipping ahead, but I want to discuss another thing in this week's Parsha, which is second chances. It seems appropriate to talk about second chances right now. And we have this amazing singular mitzvah in the Torah called Pesach Sheni, which I will loosely translate as a second chance at keeping the mitzvah, the holiday of Passover. But Pesach Sheni is, is more than that. As Reb Shlomo would put it, it's the capital of second chances, period, in life. Second chances, period. And then Reb Shlomo would always say after that, he would say, and who among us doesn't need a second chance? Right? All of us need second chances. So... So let me just give you a quick background. And I'd also like to put it in terms of current events, because I'm going to talk about some stuff that might sound very arcane and abstract and stuff that has, well, that's all very nice for 2000 years ago, but what does it have to do with us today? <laughs> but believe it or not, what I'm about to tell you has everything to do with us today. Okay. Even although it's going to sound super arcane. All right. So let me just tell you. And it all has to do with the story of Pesach Sheni. So let me just tell you very quickly. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, but I'll run through it very quickly. You see, there, one of the main offerings, and you know, we have a lot of different offerings that we would bring to the Holy Temple, different korbonos, right? But there was one that was in a whole separate category, all unto itself, and that was called the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering. And that was something that was like basically the membership, the membership dues of the Jewish people. Like it almost was akin to a man having a circumcision, a bris. It was that important. Like yet you, you, you had to bring the Corbin Pesach. It was really, really, really important. So I won't go into too much detail, but just, just, just take it at face value. So one of the first Corbin Pesachs that we brought in the desert there were people who were carrying the bones of Yosef, Yosef at Sadiq. Now remember, Yosef, when he died, one of his last words were to the Jewish people, God is going to redeem you. He's going to take you out of Egypt. He's going to keep his promise. And when that happens, remember to bring my bones with you and, and take me with you. And, and that's an amazing thing because when Yaakov Avinu died, his last words, so to speak, were, get me out of here. <laughs> and, and he had his reasons. I don't want to make light of it. But I'm just saying it in a humorous way. But Yosef had, like, Yosef, his son, had, like, the diametrical opposite thing. And believe me, they work hand in hand. He wasn't going against his father. But he was like, I will remain with you until we all leave when God keeps his promise, which he's going to do. And sure enough, God kept his promise. And sure enough, Moshe, no less than Moshe himself, took it upon himself while everyone was making their final preparations to get the bones of Yosef, which was not a simple matter because the Egyptians had buried them 
in a like a, a, a metal box on the bottom of the Nile. So there's all sorts of Midrashim and super cool, you know, explanations of how Moshe got the bones of Yosef, but he did, and he took them out. And there were people assigned to carry the bones of Yosef as they marched through the desert. Now, believe it or not, when we say, why did the sea split? Well, most people would say, Moshe, take your staff in your hand and raise up your arms and that's going to split the sea. Seems pretty straightforward. But if you actually look in the Talmud, there are different explanations in addition to that why the sea was split. And one of the explanations is the sea saw the bones of Yosef. And the way it's explained is the sea said, Yosef, you were put to the greatest tests of temptation. And you were able to resist your human nature to overcome them. And the sea said, if you could overcome your nature, I will overcome my nature. And the sea split. So, amazing, amazing. Anyway, there were the people who were carrying the bones of Yosef. And we had this idea... And now we're getting to the arcane idea that I referred to a little bit earlier. We have something called tumas mace. That's Hebrew, tumas mace. That means the impurity of death. And it's a ritual state. And if someone comes into contact with a dead body, they can't bring an offering to the holy temple. In fact, they can't even enter the holy temple until they get this off of them. And there's a purification process. They go to the mikveh. And they have the ashes of the red heifer on them. And you get over this and then, you know, you're back to normal. Okay, fine. Well, believe it or not, according to Jewish law, every single person alive today, including you and me, everyone in the world, has this status of being Tame Mes. Because... The impurity of death is such that it doesn't, there's some levels of impurity where after, say, three people come into contact, the, the person who's the carrier of it, so to speak, touches this person who touches that person, and then it disappears because it doesn't have that crazy degree of potency to it. So it kind of just fades away, but not too much mace, which means every single person in the world at some point has touched someone who's touched someone who's touched someone who's touched someone who's touched someone throughout all of the generations. And so we all have this status. Now, I'll connect this to current events in a moment because you'll see how this is actually a very relevant thing to the front page of newspapers today, surprisingly. But w one second, hold off on that. Let me finish the first thought first. And that is... The people carrying the bones of Yosef were not allowed to bring the Korban Pesach, this all-important offering, because they had contact with the dead. Okay. And they said to Moshe, what do you mean we can't bring the Korban Pesach? It's not fair. And Moshe says, wow, that's a really good point. Let me ask God. And this is one of those places where you see the wild closeness that Moshe had with God on an ongoing basis, not just when he got the Torah at Mount Sinai, but on an ongoing basis. Moshe asks God, and God says, they're right. We're going to make a whole separate holiday called Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. One month from today, anyone who is like, for whatever reason, couldn't bring the Korban Pesach will get a second chance one month from today. Now, I would ask you to think about that for a moment to understand the utter uniqueness of this. Have you ever heard anyone say, hey, hey, let's go out for lunch today? No, I can't. Why? Oh, because it's one month after Yom Kippur and I forgot to fast on Yom Kippur, so I'm fasting today. <laughs> it's like, nice try, buddy. <laughs> you know, you can fast. The fast will be beautiful and... But it's not the same as if, as if you had fasted on Yom Kippur. 
You should have fasted on Yom Kippur. That's really important. Right? Or did you ever, like, run into someone who's like, uh, you know, it's the 15th of the month of Cheshvan, and it's sort of like you knock on their door, and it's like, one second, I just have to finish benching Lulav and Esrik. And it's like they're shaking the Lulav and Esrik. Yo, my friend, you're one month late. What are you doing? It doesn't exist with any other mitzvah that you can do it one month later, that there's a makeup period for it. So just understand the extreme uniqueness and specialness of this. And I was thinking about it, and I'm sure you could probably come up with a better answer than this, but I'll just tell you what I came up with. Why by the Korban Pesach? The Korban Pesach is saying, thank you, God, for taking us out of Egypt. And you know what? We're leaving Egypt every single moment. Don't just think we leave Egypt on the 15th of the month of Nisan. We're leaving Egypt every single moment. That's why we're talking about leaving Egypt in our prayers all of the time. If you actually look in the prayer book, it's all over the prayer book. We keep on talking about leaving Egypt. Why? Because we're still leaving Egypt. That's why. So in other words, we're living with that idea in the, in the, in the most tangible way. So perhaps, perhaps, perhaps on one level, that's one of the reasons why we still have this, this ability to say, thank you, God, for taking us out of Egypt. Because it's so manifest in our lives on a regular basis. Okay, so I'm going to get back to some of the implications of that story that I just told you, them asking Moshe what that means and what that means to us in our daily lives. But let me just double back and talk about how this idea of being Tame Mace, having the impurity of death on us, you know, in terms of the Jewish law, what, what, what that means exactly, right? And by the way, it's a spiritual condition. It, this is not a hygiene thing, you know what I mean? Like, you know, people get freaked out, you know, what, 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 what does that mean exactly? You know, just, it, it's, it's, a pure, it's, a, it's a state of spiritual purity that we're talking about. You know, our, our souls are so much bigger than our bodies. Our bodies are these like tiny little physical things that are overlaid over our giant massive souls, you know? So, so there's a lot going on in terms of our, our, our spirituality that's, that's very relevant to us. And, but when you talk about these levels, it gets a, it's a little bit abstract, but it's, it's very real and very relevant to us is my point. So, so how does it relate to us? Well, the Temple Mount. You ever see the Temple Mount in, in newspaper headlines? All the trouble that happens on the Temple Mount? The Temple Mount was the, is the place of the Beis HaMikdash. It is also where one of the major holy sites of Islam exists. And so why don't we go on to the Temple Mount today? In other words, if that is our number one holiest site. And the answer is because you're not allowed to go into the Holy Temple while you have this condition called Tumas Mace. Do you understand? In other words, this flashpoint, which periodically creates riots and all sorts of disruptions and like lots of trouble in the world, makes headlines on a semi-regular basis. It's not a way bigger issue because we don't go up there because of this thing called Tame Mace. Tumas Mace. So, so it's just so fascinating to think that this thing, which seems like the most arcane piece of Jewish law, is actually majorly impacting current events every single day. Now, what will change? Another thing that we don't take as seriously as we really should, one red heifer. If one red heifer shows up, it is going to impact the world on a crazy level, a crazy major level. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> keep that in mind.
Okay. So, anyway, let's get back to this idea of second chances. There are a couple of things that I want to learn out from this. One is that we can ask each other for second chances. You see, it's very instructive about this story that Moshe didn't say, oh, by the way, you guys can't bring the Korban Pesach, obviously, because you're Tame Mace. But the good news is, in one month, you're going to be able to. So don't stress out. Everything's cool. You're going to be okay. That is not how the story happened. It happened because the Jews themselves said, God, what do you mean we can't serve you in this way? We want to serve you. You see, that in itself we shouldn't take for granted. Because if I told you, hey, guess what? You don't have to do this. You you don't have to do this mitzvah. A lot of people's reaction is, great, I have to catch up on emails. Or, you know, I've been wanting to see the new Doctor Strange movie. I can fit it in then, right? Or I am so exhausted. I really have to catch up on my sleep. You know, so let's not take for granted the idea that the, the, the Jews' reaction was like, what do you mean I can't bring the offering? I want to bring the offering, God, because I want to be close to you. Like, that's a very, very beautiful thing. Not only that, but, you know, I'm not pretending that I'm like this all the time, but on a good day, on a good day, when I pray, and I pray for the Beis HaMikdash, the rebuilding of the Holy Temple, I'll say the following. I'll say, Hashem, you gave us these mitzvahs. This is your will. Let us do your will for your sake. Let Allow us to serve you in this way because you gave us these mitzvahs and we want to do what your will is. And... And the fact that we asked at all. And now we're getting a little more personal, a little deeper. A lot of us, after we miss an opportunity, whatever it is in life, fill in the blank, we fall into depression or self-loathing, self-hatred. How could I have done that? Why didn't that happen for me? How could I have messed that up? I blew it. And we're so imprisoned by our negativity that we can't even arrive at the idea of asking for a second chance. So, So let's appreciate what it means not just to receive a second chance, But to ask for a second chance and to feel worthy to receive a second chance. And you know, so much about life is just getting along with each other. And the idea that you can go up to another person and say, look, I really regret what I did I really regret what happened, but could I have a second chance? I don't know. If someone said that to me, I I feel like it would be really hard to say no to that person. So, So consider that. Consider that. And I think in some ways it's easier to ask God for a second chance than another person for a second chance, right? Because you're going to hear an answer. But I think the lesson here that I'm really trying to communicate, let me just say it very simply right now, is that you have to ask. That's, that is what I'm, that, that's what this whole story boils down to, is the fact that they, they asked, So we also have to ask. We have to ask.
So we're going from Tu Bishvat to Purim to Pesach to Lagba Omer to Shvuas. It's all just happy day after happy day. And then like there's this hard left turn. And then all of a sudden we're in this period of mourning, like sad, like what? What happened? God, did you suddenly get mad at us? Like it seemed like everything's so great and now like you're mad and what, what's going on? And what I want to suggest is the following. It's not that. It isn't that. It isn't that. That just like God is just gets closer and closer and closer till you've got the revelation of his will at Mount Sinai, right? He's taking us like heaven and earth are coming together. That God is continuing to get closer. But now let's think about that for a moment, because it's not so simple. You see, what if I were to tell you that the king was going to stop by and pay you a visit in your home? The king is arriving. I want to take this seriously, please. Well, what would you do? I'll tell you what I would do. I would make sure that the house was clean. I would make sure that the floors were swept, the books were put away, the dishes were not in the sink. I would make sure that the house was in order. That, that, that's one thing I would do. I would make sure that I was clean, that I was respectfully dressed. That, that's, I mean, those are the basics anyway. I mean, the king, the king is coming into my house. So I want to apply that to what is going on right now. You see, there's this thing called din. Din is a spiritual word. It's often translated as judgment. And generally speaking, like when we hear the word din, we want to run in the other direction. We're like, no, no, not, no din, please. Let's, let's just stay away from din. But what I'm saying is, is that there's a level of closeness when the king arrives where din is appropriate. In other words, there is a higher expectation now as this closeness develops that you are up to this increased responsibility that this closeness in the relationship mandates. Do you understand? Like, for instance, let's say you're getting closer with the President of the United States and the President of the United States calls you, right? And then you return the call three weeks later. (laughs) It's not cool. It's not cool. The President of the United States is calling you. Oh, so you say, hey, 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 I call my friends three weeks later. They don't seem to have an issue with it. Okay, I'm with you. But this is the President of the United States calling you. You return the call as soon as you can. Again, the increase in closeness brings a leveling up in your responsibility and your accountability. And that's how we're defining din right now. Because there is more of a chiv, more of an obligation for you to be on the level, to meet the level of closeness that's in the world right now. Is that clear? Am I communicating? So it's not, let's revisit the, this mind-bending thing that everyone has an issue with, okay? It's not, hey, Tu Bishvat, Purim, Pesach, Lag Baomer, Shvuas, all of a sudden we're in this like other period? Like what happened? It's not that. God didn't run away. God didn't turn away. God is continuing to get closer. But now that God is getting closer, the ball is in our court for us to up our game. And if we don't up our game, Then all of a sudden we say, well, why is the world falling apart? Well, yeah, that's why the world's falling apart. So now let's make it super practical right now. What does it mean to up your game? 
And can I just go back to what we said to be to begin with? Let's get along with each other. Let's make sure that we're getting along with each other. Because all of these issues the rabbis already explained to us are because we're hating each other for no reason. So let's start there. Let's make a special effort starting now to make sure that we're getting along with each other. And if we see a pattern of dissonance with multiple people, let's look in the mirror ourselves and ask ourselves, what can I be doing better? What can I be doing better? So that when the king arrives and he knocks at our door, like in Shir Shirim, right? That we're there to open it and that that embrace takes place. In the midst of trying to deal with the question of where is the benevolent God in the five years of the Shoah? Can you help me with that a bit? Well, you know, every answer to that has to begin with we don't know. You know, so... So we don't know. I mean, that's that that's how we begin and how we would begin any any answer to that. There was some divine workings that were going on, and um, you know, stay tuned, stay tuned. You know, after one hundred and twenty, we'll we'll get an answer. But uh, we we. We, we can't give an answer. And, and to me, I'll just speak personally. Um, to me, there's something healing about that, that, that we can never know. And yet to know that we exist in good health and blessing in a world with a God who still exists and who's still running the world, and it's the same God who created the universe and who gave us breakfast this morning, and we don't know, but God is still here taking care of us and blessing us in so many ways. I know that there is an answer, and I know that there is something that that was constructive about it, but I'll never know what it is. And, you know, that... That, that feels like the best answer for me. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.